Hello, and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, I'll be reading and discussing the section of Bestowing Virtue in Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. The section is split into three, and for the first two, I'll be going over and discussing examples from art of Michelangelo's David, Picasso's Guernica, Andy Warhol's Campbell's Soup. And I also have a wee film discussion about the movie Tigers Are Not Afraid. And the last little section, I have a discussion of the film School of Rock. So let's get cracking on. Of the Bestowing Virtue When Zarathustra had taken leave of the town to which his heart was attached and which was called the Pied Cow, there followed him many who called themselves his disciples, and escorted him. Thus they came to a crossroad. There Zarathustra told them that from then on he wanted to go alone, for he was a friend of going alone. But his disciples handed him in farewell a staff, upon the golden haft of which a serpent was coiled about a sun. Zarathustra was delighted with the staff and leaned upon it, then he spoke thus to his disciples, Tell me, how did gold come to have the highest value? Because it is uncommon and useless in shining and mellow in lustre. It always bestows itself. Only as an image of the highest virtue did gold come to have the highest value. Gold-like gleams the glance of the giver. Gold lustre makes peace between moon and sun. The highest virtue is uncommon and useless. It is shining and mellow in lustre. The highest virtue is a bestowing virtue. Truly, I divine you well, my disciples. You aspire to the bestowing virtue, as I do. What could you have in common with cats and wolves? You thirst to become sacrifices and gifts yourselves, and that is why you thirst to heap up all riches in your soul. Your soul aspires insatiably after treasures and jewels because your virtue is insatiable in wanting to give. You compel all things to come to you and into you that they may flow back from your fountain as gifts of your love. Truly such a bestowing love must become a thief of all values, but I call this selflessness healthy and holy. There is another selflessness an all-too-poor, a hungry selflessness that always wants to steal, that selflessness of the sick, the sick selflessness. It looks with the eye of a thief upon all lustrous things. With the greed of hunger it measures him who has plenty to eat, and is always skulking about the table of the givers. Sickness speaks from such craving, and hidden degeneration the thieving greed of this longing speaks of a sick body. Tell me, my brothers, what do we account bad and the worst of all? Is it not degeneration? And we always suspect degeneration where the bestowing soul is lacking. Our way is upward 
from the species across to the super species. But the degenerate mind, which says all for me, is a horror to us. So initially we have this image of the serpent, and this time coiled about a sun, instead of coiled around the eagle that we had earlier on in the book. And what does this whole image about a serpent and a sun, or a serpent and an eagle mean? That we have the sun ultimately representing Apollo, or Apollonian idea for things. And what does that mean? That Apollo is the god of reason, and the serpent is related into desire, and the opposite of that is Dionysus. And traditionally, we have sort of this eagle and serpent image as well that Nietzsche has also commented on earlier, in which the eagle gains the upper hand on the serpent, so therefore reason has control over our bodily desires. But the way in which Nietzsche always likes to make it work is that they're both in tandem and in unison with each other, and one cannot work without the other. In the sense of our reason would be nothing without our emotions and our desires and our drive, and likewise we need to get control of those drives and emotions, and so our reason also has the benefit of controlling our bodies and desires and so forth. So there's a back and forth between both of them, rather than having reason solely as a control of our desire. And we have this image then set up in very much this whole Apollonian idea for things in this first section, in which things go towards this ideal and image of things, this starting to paint this whole picture of creating images of things and holding up images as the highest ideals. And what ultimately Nietzsche says as well, that how what do we exactly have in common with cats and wolves? And that's kind of the point here for this bit as well, that what exactly does someone aspire towards is to come out of their own animality in a way to have this push away from their bodily desires and hunger and sex drive and so forth, being in control of their actions. What you want to go is to go beyond all that, as he says there, across to the super species, so becoming even more of a human being than what your own base instinctual drives would be. But also what sort of ironically hinted at as well is that just as we have sort of a hunger drive within us and the need for food is also saying here, well, this need to get away from our animality towards being an ethical, virtuous individual, there's that same sense of driving towards and striving to become a better person and aspiring to be more and more virtuous. And they get that wee great line, that is why you thirst to heap up all riches in your soul. Your soul aspires insatiably after treasures and jewels because your virtue is insatiable in wanting to give. In the same sense of we can't get rid of that drive within us, in the same sense of wanting to become a more virtuous person, having that relation back into our bodily drives, and 
of course, it's then making the point of, while traditionally we think of becoming more virtuous is to become selfless and get rid of all selfishness precisely by being wanting to be uh, more virtuous individual. You have that insatiable drive within you that is selfish in a way because you want to reap all treasures and rewards all for yourself by wanting to be a better person. And in a way, it's sort of that clash between our wanting to overcome our bodily desires that then we have this idea of sickness that's then brought up that sickness speaks from such craving and hidden degeneration. The thieving greed of this longing speaks of a sick body. Tell me, my brothers, what do we account bad and the worst of all? Is it not degeneration? And it's always in the sense of the more you move away from the body, the more you have this whole sense of being sick about the world, sick about how you look upon your own body and drives. And so... In a way, it's also saying that that leads us into a sick sort of psychological state because we're treating everything in an earthly way and a very bad and negative thing for us. And then we get this whole idea of wanting to move upwards away from our bodies, away from the world, and the next little bit that rounds off section one. So continuing on. Our mind flies upwards, thus it is an image of our bodies, an image of an advance and elevation. The names of the virtues are such images of advances and elevations. Thus the body goes through history, evolving and battling. And the spirit, what is it to the body? The herald, companion and echo of its battles and victories. All names of good and evil are images. They do not speak out. They only hint. He is a fool who seeks knowledge from them. Whenever your spirit wants to speak in images, pay heed, for this is when your virtue has its origin and beginning. Then your body is elevated and risen up. It enraptures the spirit with its joy, that it may become creator and evaluator and lover and benefactor of all things when your heart surges broad and full like a river a blessing and danger to those who live nearby that is when your virtue has its origin and beginning when you are exalted above praise and blame and your will wants to command all things as the will of a lover that is when your virtue has its origin and beginning when you despise the soft bed and what is pleasant and cannot make your bed too far away from the soft-hearted that is when your virtue has its origin and beginning when you are the willers of a single will and when you call this dispeller of need your essential and necessity that is when your virtue has its origin and beginning. Truly, it is a new good and evil. Truly, a new roaring in the depths and the voice of a new fountain. It is power, this new virtue. It is a ruling idea, and around it a subtle soul, a golden sun, and around it the serpent of knowledge. So then we have the whole idea of virtue and images and the whole advancement of ideas to history evolving and battling so 
from that we have the whole sense of knowledge is not something that is pure not something that is absolute not something that's always going to be true eternally regardless whatever systems in place regardless whatever philosophy and philosophical model that tries to create truth truth is always going to be something that has a history towards it and whatever somebody has as an idea is automatically going to be in the sense of having a battle with other different ideas that are around and people's opinions so it precisely clashes against the idea there in traditionally in philosophy where you try to create that foundation that's pure and absolute and good and that'll try to get rid of all the battle whereas Nietzsche's argument is no everything is the battle everything leads towards an evolving and a battling with other ideas and it all leads to a big massive clash of things and when we get that idea of the body or as he says the spirit then those things are going to be changing and evolving throughout history it's not always just going to be one static idea that we have the same thing for virtues and what's interesting as well we have this whole clash with an image and what that image is then describing so we have a sense of a clash with ideality and actuality and the sense of whenever we name something or have a concept or an idea for something that describes a thing in a given way but as he says here they do not speak out they only hint for the images in the sense of they're never going to be the actual object and so we have this sort of sense of we only get hints and glimpses and little mirror-like reflections of what the actual thing is every single time there is an opinion or an idea about a thing that's only one way to look at it there's only one perspective we don't get the actual object itself and so we end up with this very fragmented idea for what knowledge is if you think about knowledge in the sense of a broken vase let's say in an archaeological sense where you have to try and piece together all the little different bits and bobs into fit into being a complete vase again well then if you take each little piece and bit of the vase then we get into the what Nietzsche is trying to say here is each little bit would allow us a different viewpoint and different perspective and how we can view the thing as a whole differently in each case but then we also have the whole sense of creation and creativity coming back out here to say well whenever we raise up over our bodies that's when the sense of we become a creator and evaluator and a lover of things so it's interesting to say we have the one critical aspect of ideality but then we also have the sense of well creativity can't take place unless we have that move towards an ideal creative space that Nietzsche sort of argued for previously as well in the section of the way of the creator and we have that pop up again here where Nietzsche is going to again argue that we need to move away from everyday existence herd mentality everyone around us in a sense because what is that going to do is all bring us down into accepting what somebody else says 
do value in our own way we think about things and what does that creative space allow for for us to develop our own ideas develop our own opinions not allow ourselves to bring ourselves down and it's a whole sense of when you despise the soft bed and what is pleasant so it's a sense of as well moving away from your own comfort and what's around you and what you think is good for you in the sense of moving then towards wanting your own way of doing things wanting your single will it says what does that mean wanting your own way of doing things away from the many and then once you get towards that you get into that idea of wanting to create a new sense of how you think about things your own way of thinking about things and then we get into the whole thing it's a new good and evil truly new roaring in the depths and a new fountain the voice of a new fountain and so we could say for section one then it very much is apollonian as nietzsche has in a concept of that in birth of tragedy in the sense of the apollonian moves towards the ideal of things allows us to have that freedom of creativity and free space away from our bodily desires away from the world and it's through that creative space that we then can be critical and have a critical reflection upon the world our bodies everyday life and then we don't want the comfort of our soft bed as he says anymore then what do we do in that creative space create an ideality really create an image that's gonna basically be the point of critical reflection upon how we think about things in the world and we get this whole sense of creating something that then has an influential impact upon how we think about the world in section two and it's precisely then section two is the dionysian aspect of it so let's get tucked into section two here zarathustra fell silent a while and regarded his disciples lovingly then he went on speaking thus and his voice was different stay loyal to the earth my brothers with the power of your virtue may your bestowing love and your knowledge serve towards the meaning of the earth thus i beg and entreat you do not let it fly away from the things of earth and beat with its wings against the eternal walls alas there has always been much virtue that has flown away lead as i do the flown away virtue back to earth yes back to body and life that it may give the earth its meaning a human meaning a hundred times hitherto has spirit as well as virtue flown away and blundered alas all this illusion and blundering still dwells in our bodies it has there become body and will a hundred times has spirit as well as virtue experimented and gone astray yes man was an experiment what a fantastic line that is isn't it man was an experiment alas much ignorance and error has become body in us not only the reason of millennia the madness of millennia too breaks out in us it is dangerous to be an heir we are still fighting step by step with the great chance and hitherto the senseless the meaningless has still ruled over mankind may your spirit and your virtue serve the meaning of the earth my brothers 
and may the value of all things be fixed anew by you to that end you should be fighters to that end you should be creators the body purifies itself through knowledge experimenting with knowledge it evaluates itself to the discerning man all instincts are holy the soul of the elevated man grows joyful physician heal yourself thus you will heal your patient too let his best healing aid be to see with his own eyes him who makes himself well there are a thousand paths that have never yet been trodden a thousand forms of health and hidden islands of life man and man's earth are still unexhausted and undiscovered watch and listen you solitaries from the future comes winds with a stealthy flapping of wings and good tidings go out to delicate ears you solitaries of today you have seceded from society you shall one day be a people from you who have chosen out yourselves shall a chosen people spring and from this chosen people the superman truly the earth shall yet become a house of healing and already a new odor floats about it an odor that brings health and a new hope so then we have nietzsche precisely say don't forget about the earth don't forget about the body don't forget basically about life itself why is that the case because traditionally within philosophy everything moves us towards metaphysics and the complete opposite of that moves us towards the soul moves us towards the afterlife moves us towards just that whole pure foundation for our knowledge foundation for ethics and action and so forth what ultimately does all that mean is that we end up in this very static model that could potentially always drive us towards just the end of our lives the afterlife all actions are just determined towards to go to the end of our life and we forget about living our life the importance of our bodies the enjoyment of life itself and just living and knowledge itself becoming static over a period of time as well and then we have nietzsche have the fantastic argument about fighting step by step with great chance and the sense of novelty and chance has an effect upon meaning in the sense of knowledge is not something that is absolute but knowledge is something that comes to us very much by chance and changes through chance and novelties and newness is based on novelties and all the little things that happen purely sometimes by complete accident and we also get this sort of repetition of experimentation and that precisely that great line as i said there as well man was an experiment and experimenting with knowledge in the sense of again not allowing it to remain static not allowing it to just wanting to be in an absolute state where facts are always going to be one given way how we're going to think is always going to be in one given way the whole important point about knowledge is precisely experimentation and the concept of man let's say as well is an experiment he's saying it's not something that's absolute or defined in any given way and how we think about ourselves is very much in a very fragmented chance-like nature in the sense of while we think about ourselves at a given time period very much will change very much progressively over time as well that great sense of battling and evolving as he says in history in the previous section 
And so we get this sense of this move towards an ideality. If we push it too far, we end up with a sickness almost and a sick psychological makeup about thinking everything's wrong with our body in the world where does all the health then come from then that's what we get the last little section as well all the health and healing ourselves basically is this move back towards the earth back towards the world and our bodies then we have our best healing aid basically as well then we can start to get away from all this harm that's been created throughout history through this emphasis on a metaphysics and approaches that move us precisely away from life and then sort of rounding off the section as well we have that whole idea of someone who creates something in a space away from society saying that's okay for people who've moved away from society and away from this whole herd mentality about things and want to create something for themselves he says well that's absolutely fine because one day even though people might not agree with you now you'll eventually find people who agree with you in the future and that set of people as long as they move towards a focus back on the earth, a back on arguing for the importance of the body and so on, then that'll all lead us towards a much more healthier approach about how we think about things. And for these first two sections, I think a good examples is through the creation of art here. In the sense of you can see Nietzsche making the argument here that when we get into creativity and wanting to create everything in a space and so forth and moving towards an ideality then we can precisely think about the idea of beauty in art and that's what traditionally art argues for within philosophy as well what makes a thing beautiful or not what makes a thing basically take his back and go oh my god that is absolutely stunning is artwork but here Nietzsche is saying well art shouldn't just be beautiful or picturesque picturesque is a nice word as well in a sense of if you just have an absolutely lovely wee landscape you go that's really quite nice and picturesque isn't it the way that it's done but in the sense of here Nietzsche is saying well it shouldn't just be about beauty it should also have the aspect about making us think about the world and reflecting upon things in a deeper way and so we have the sense of what would art just be like if it was just beautiful and there's lots of examples but a quick one is Michelangelo's David I think is a really good one in the sense that we have Michelangelo's David in a very much a Apollonian style of body in the sense of very muscular very idyllic the very form that it takes place is almost divine in a way because it's so perfectly done and perfectly sculpted that it looks too good almost that how can a physical human body look that good but that's the point of the beautiful as well is meant to make us reflect upon those very almost divine like qualities within things and then we're taken aback and go oh look at Michelangelo's David look at that body isn't that absolutely gorgeous so then what's a good example of art that makes us think on a deeper level about things so obviously we can have examples of political art as well and picasso's guernica 
is a good example of that. And there's a fantastic wee statement as well from pablopicasso.org about Guernica that was painted in 1937. So let's read the little bit from that. Probably Picasso's most famous work, Guernica is certainly his most powerful political statement, painted as an immediate reaction to the Nazis' devastating casual bombing practice on the Basque town of Guernica during the Spanish Civil War. Guernica shows the tragedies of war and the suffering it inflicts upon individuals, particularly innocent civilians. This work has gained a monumental status, becoming a perpetual reminder of the tragedies of war, an anti-war symbol, and an embodiment of peace. On completion, Guernica was displayed around the world on a brief tour, becoming famous and widely acclaimed. This tour helped bring the Spanish Civil War to the world's attention. So we have the sense here, of course, Guernica then not just simply being art just for beauty for beauty's sake, being picturesque and therefore nice to look at, something that you can give your gran or loved one as a present, and then they could hang up and make, make the living room look good or whatever room in the house it is look nice. Now, here is something that makes you think more deeper about things. Here, it's making us think about tragedy of war and suffering that has on everybody that's affected by war. And, of course, we have the absolute contorted faces and faces screaming and so forth and just disembodied heads and places and so forth and you get an absolute just cluster of just bodies and mouths and bits and bobs of things all over the place and that's precisely of course the point it just goes my god what horror and of course we don't have to just use political art as well to illustrate art making us think on a deeper level another example is Andy Warhol's Campbell soup tins or soup cans which is produced around 1962 or at least between 1961 and 1962 there it says so the span of a couple of years or so and immediately anybody looking at the Campbell soup tin would go wait a minute here this is just a picture of a soup can what possibly is going on on a deeper level here this is a bit absurd, isn't it? This is just a regular object from everyday life. What is particularly special about this? You've just given us Guernica, now you're going to talk about a soup can? But we can say, well, that's kind of the point about what Andy Warhol does as well. It makes you think about things much more on an everyday level. And on the one hand, what is it doing, at least in a historical sense within art, is challenging what makes high art basically that whole concept of the beautiful and that whole concept of what makes something absolutely gobsmacking and then says well actually no we don't have to deal with all these idyllic divine images that we have we can actually go back to much more everyday sense of things and then what the soup can does as well is andy warhol's argument as well that everydayness around us is beautiful in the sense of we're surrounded by beauty so much in an everyday sense that we precisely forget about that and we just have beauty as this big concept big idea something that's almost unattainable and unthinkable and anybody that we are able to achieve that are held up in such high regard whilst andy warhol's point is to say well 
quite the opposite of that. It's not something that can be held up in high regard at all because we're precisely surrounded by it all the time. And what's an example of that? The soup can. That's something that's beautiful and beautifully done and produced and so on. And so his whole point is to make us think more deeply about the beauty of the everyday rather than beauty in a very much unattainable or graspable sense of it. And again, I don't think we can just talk about just art here. We can go into films as well, because we can say, well, what do films do? They take us to a creative space, basically, that's ideal and deals with idyllic things and idyllic subjects and subject matters and so on. And then the whole thing again is great films shouldn't just be about a beautiful experience or just be about something that's entertaining that we just enjoy start to finish, but also make us think on a deeper level about things as well. So in the sense of just a regular film that's just entertaining start to finish, we could maybe use any sort of superhero style of movie that you'd like, like Avengers or something like that, in which you have the good guys, bad guys, good guys when at the end, bad guys defeated, or some good guys get killed, but ultimately the good guys still win. And nothing really happens that much on a really deeper level on a whole. But then a good film that does make us think on a deeper level, of course there's lots of examples of that as well, but I think of a good example of a film that I've seen recently as well is called tigers are not afraid and that is from 2017 and it's a spanish language mexican horror mystery film as it says on wikipedia and here's the little blurb as well from google about it a haunting horror fairy tale set against the backdrop of Mexico's devastating drug wars. Tigers Are Not Afraid follows a group of orphan children armed with three magical wishes running from the ghosts that haunt them and the cartel that murdered their parents. Filmmaker Isa Lopez creates a world that recalls the early films of Guillermo del Toro imbued with her own gritty urban spin of magical realism to conjure a wholly unique experience that audiences will not soon forget. Indeed, it's an absolutely fantastic film that I highly recommend people go have a wee watch if you've not seen it already. And it's precisely like it says as well. It's a quite a harrowing movie about a set of children who are basically trying to survive together after basically their parents have been taken away and it's said by the children in the group as well when one asks what happened to their parents taken away killed and then their body parts are chopped up and basically sold for our whatever it is that you do on the black market so quite a really dark backdrop and you just have the kids ultimately just try to be kids in this really horrible setting as well and then you have the kids manage to get their hands on well it's one of the kids as well manages to pickpocket a phone as well as a gun from a gang member and then they try to hunt down the kids as well to get the phone back because the gang members recorded the actual leader of the gang killing someone, a sort of like blackmail, and the leader of the gang is also trying to run for political office at the same time, so don't want any of that to be shown to anybody. And it's a good old-fashioned horror tale about just wanting revenge in the sense of the ghosts who've been killed, ultimately the parents, want to kill this guy who's murdered them all 
we have basically the mother of the girl in the film say bring him to us bring him to us and she's obviously terrified out of her mind for a good chunk of the movie as well having this ghost mother chase you around the place and then she eventually gets the cut of her jib is the right way to phrase it but she eventually gets the idea that okay maybe i'll bring bring him there and through hook or by crook as well he gets his comeuppance in the end so we spoiler alert there but i don't think that's really that much of a bother if i give you a wee spoiler about what happens in the film because you've got to still go through the whole emotional experience and roller coaster watching in the first place so yeah so what does exactly the film enable us to do is on a deeper level get a whole insight into the absolutely horrible nature about the whole drug cartel and drug business and just the the horrible horrible effect it has on the kids as well and just got to absolutely adore the kids just trying to go about their everyday life and just trying to get on with things and just do things normally as best as they physically can even though that the city that they're living in is pretty much being abandoned as well and they're living homeless on this rooftop at a given point in the film in which they're all just huddled together under this little shanty little place that they've built up and why is it completely empty because the gangs have killed people and people have moved away from that and you also have the sense of there's a skull that gets i don't know if it gets shot up inside or they're shooting outside it's not exactly clear but there's basically the bit in the film as well where all the kids just suddenly have to take cover under their desks and it's like my god what the hell they're just trying to learn here why the hell do they have to go through all that so precisely gives it as an insight there into the whole aspect of the horror of that reality of what's going on within very much the overall thematic thing of being a horror movie as well so moving on to section three when zarathustra had said these words he paused like one who has not said his last word long he balanced the staff doubtfully in his hand at last he spoke thus and his voice was different i now go away alone my disciples you too now go away and be alone so i will have it truly i advise you go away from me and guard yourselves against zarathustra and better still be ashamed of him perhaps he has deceived you the man of knowledge must be able not only to love his enemies but also to hate his friends one repays a teacher badly if one remains only a pupil and why then should you not pluck at my laurels you respect me but how if one day your respect should tumble take care that a falling statue does not strike you dead you say you believe in zarathustra but what importance is zarathustra you are my believers but of what importance are all believers you had not yet sought yourselves when you found me thus do all believers therefore all belief is of so little account now i bid you lose me and find yourselves and only when you have all denied me will i return to you truly my other eyes my brothers i shall then seek my lost ones with another love i shall then love you and once more you shall have become my friends and children of one hope and then I will be with you a third time that I may celebrate the great noontide with you. And this is the great noontide. It is when man stands at the middle of his course between animal and superman and celebrates his journey to the evening as his highest hope. 
for it is the journey to a new morning. Then man going under will bless himself, for he will be going over to Superman, and the sun of his knowledge will stand at noontide. All gods are dead, now we want the Superman to live. Let this be our last will, one day at the great noontide. Thus spoke Zarathustra. So then we have Zarathustra round things off by saying that he's going to leave everyone and then go back into the mountains, which is how the next section starts as well, with Zarathustra back in the mountains again. And so it's an interesting wee way to wrap up section one as well, when Zarathustra is like, well, if you believe everything that I say, that's all very well and good, but now you should go develop your own thoughts and develop your own opinions about things and when you do that then I'll come back to you and it's a sense of we should never hold up anyone in a sense of great idolatry and where we just have a complete admiration for absolutely someone and what someone says because we lose sense of ourselves and our own opinions and our own ideas and as that idea coming back as well from the whole war and warrior section where Nietzsche says as well that we have great soldiers in the sense of we have a great set of people who are out to go and defend somebody but we don't have a set of great warriors in the sense of we don't have a great set of people who have their own opinions and are willing to fight for what they want to say about things and we have that return back as well don't hold up teachers and people who you respect up to such a great ideal that all what you're going to do is just become a mouthpiece for them, a great piece of great PR basically for someone else. You've got to think about you in this space and your own beliefs and opinions and values about things. And only when you sort of become an enemy to Zarathustra is saying, once you differ from me, then I'm going to become relevant to you again and to come back to what you're going to be saying and thinking about things. And who is the opposite of this? Who's somebody that ultimately became like a mouthpiece for somebody else? Within philosophy, at least, it's Plato. And who did Plato hold up in such high regard is Socrates, because Socrates, of course, is the teacher, Plato is the student, and what does Plato's work have? Socrates is the main character. Who wins every single argument? Socrates. Who is always has the best way of doing things? Socrates. Plato is Socrates' little cheerleader the entire time. And then, of course, we have within Plato's own philosophy, the whole problem of how do you distinguish Plato from Socrates and the whole sense of, well, earlier, Plato is all about Socrates and then slowly and later on do we get Plato starting to emerge from that. But that's the problem as well is Nietzsche says we don't want to end up in that problem where we just become a cheerleader for someone else. We don't want to end up in the situation where people are trying to distinguish who is someone's opinion from your opinion we shouldn't arrive at that point in very much the sense of what Nietzsche has as well as being very much influenced by Schopenhauer at least within his early philosophy he then doesn't become a cheerleader for Schopenhauer's own views about things but then wants to develop his own ideas and own way of doing things and to such an extent that you could say well Nietzsche's own philosophy is developed from Schopenhauer but also manages to twist 
and be different and completely opposed and separate to Schopenhauer as well at the same time and that's more of what Nietzsche wants to go towards have someone as an educator love what they say absolutely adore what they say but then be critical of them don't just allow yourself to just become absolutely and the point of a cheerleader for that person's view we don't want that happening whatsoever and so a great movie i thought to discuss about sort of inspirational teacher is school of rock starring jack black from 2003 and this is what the plot says as well from google overly enthusiastic guitarist dewey finn played by jack black gets thrown out of his bar band and finds himself in desperate need of work posing as a substitute te music teacher at an elite private elementary school he exposes his students to the hard rock gods he idolizes and emulates much to the consternation of the uptight principal played by joan cusack as he gets his privileged and precocious charges in touch with their inner rock and roll animals he imagines redemption at a local battle of the bands and so it's a fantastic wee family movie as well about playing music and get inspired by music and learning a musical instrument and of course you get the whole sense of passing all that knowledge on to someone else and passing up what you loved as a teenager onto someone else and we of course had that sort of cringe moments as well of our parents playing some music and so on you get a sense of oh please god dad no please i don't need to listen to this another 10 times but also what's great about the sense of learning a musical instrument as well and learning from a teacher is a sense of they allow us to have that great admiration for them the great skill that they have and technique that they develop but also in the sense of the great teacher will not be the strict one who wants you to do things absolutely by the book and tries to allow you to develop your own style and your own what technique and way of doing things that can differ from how they do things and also allowing for those little novelties that happen as well that's so important to the extent that we can actually not even notice that we're doing them at all and that having a great profound impact upon exactly our own style and the way that we play let's say if we're playing a guitar how you hold your guitar pick how you're hitting your string how hard you're hitting the string how you're managed to fret the chords and so forth all having a deep impact upon your own playing style and technique and so on all to the point that we don't even think about it as well but it really does because that's how you're able to develop who you are as a player and how you're different from someone else is all those little things in the same sense of also sharing our love of something as well especially with another person or with children it's a sense again of well you have to allow your kids to develop their own loves and own passions for things and when it comes to music sure we may incredibly love led zeppelin and completely think what is exactly wrong with our children if they don't like led zeppelin but on the other hand well that's perfectly fine if they don't they have to develop who they like what exactly gets them going inspired and pumped up and so forth different from ourselves and it's all that diversity again that precisely makes us up as individuals and different from each other
So then we have overall for the last little section then that whole importance of creativity creating within that ideal space about things and then also not forgetting about the importance of the world the importance of our bodies life affirming viewer things as well to all have an influence upon that creative act and creative action about what we do and then we have of course the wrapping up of the resection about allowing for our own views to develop again out with those who we admire as teachers and opinions that we uphold with great value Many thanks for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed my discussion of the section of bestowing virtue that wraps up the discussion of part one of Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Feel free to drop me an email at my address, dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com. I could be also found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening and I'll hope you'll join me next time.